Friends, if you have a Bible, let me invite you to turn with me to 1 Timothy chapter 1, verse 15. This is one of Paul's letters in the New Testament, and you'll find it on page 991 in your pew Bible if you're looking there. 1 Timothy chapter 1, verse 15, I want to think with you this morning about our relationships and about what I believe to be uh, presuppositions for healthy relationships. How do we have good, how do we have improving relationships in the midst of many relational difficulties? And you, as you think about your own life, may have uh, struggles with family, struggles with friends, uh, parents to children, children to parents. Most everybody would agree that there's something wrong with our world, there's usually something not quite right with our relationships. Things are not going well or the way that we would want them to go with our parents, our roommates, our neighbor. Decades ago, the London Times asked its readers to submit an essay in response to the question, what's wrong with the world? A guy named G.K. Chesterton You may know that name. He's a prolific author, writer, a man of letters, as they say. Uh, He wrote weekly editorials, dozens of books. He wrote the famous Father Brown detective series some of you are fond of. So this is a guy who was verbose and prolific, a man who had something insightful, something lengthy even, to say on almost any subject imaginable. And he wrote an essay in response to the question, What is wrong with the world? Dear sirs, I am. Signed, G.K. Chesterton. Well, he has it right. He's very biblical in that respect. That's what Paul says about himself, and that's what I want to say to you about yourself. And I want you to think about with me what Paul says in 1 Timothy chapter 1, verse 15, what he says, why you don't believe it about yourself, and how it might, if you believed it, change your relationships. Those three things with me as we come to God's word. This is the word of the Lord. The saying is trustworthy and deserving of full acceptance. That Christ Jesus came into the world to save sinners, of whom I am the foremost. Amen. This is God's word. Let's look to him in prayer. Ask him to help us. Father, we do come into your presence. And thank you for that promise that a bruised reed you will not break. That a lightly blowing candle you will not snuff out. Be kind and gracious to our souls, we pray in Jesus' name. Amen. What is the presupposition behind building a healthy relationship? It is to embrace what Paul says about himself. I am the problem. I am the chief problem in my relationships. This is where all healthy relationships begin, and this, frankly, is confusing for many people. John Bunyan wrote, as you know, The Pilgrim's Progress. He wrote his autobiography entitled Grace Abounding to the Chief 
of sinners. Why? Because he knew what Paul knew. He knew that what Paul is saying of himself, he wants us to embrace the maturing Christian will have a like-minded view as Paul, that of all the sinners in the world that he could line up in his imagination, he was the worst among them. Now, one commentator went so far as to say in thinking along Paul's lines that there are only two possibilities here. Either Paul's self-abasement is morbid or it's unreal. You get what he's saying. He's perhaps being unreal, they will say. I mean, after all, Paul couldn't be serious about this. He's just giving pious exaggeration. And there is that tendency in Christian circles, isn't there? For us to posture ourselves, to spiritually hype ourselves, and frankly, if you're in a community which believes that it's healthy to think of yourself as a sinner, then why not... Go all the way and imagine yourself and declare yourself to be the worst possible sinner you've ever known or anybody could ever imagine. Won't that, in a way, get you more in with a community which believes it's actually healthy to think of yourself not as totally good but as corrupted in sin? So some will say, Paul's he's just using hyperbole here. He doesn't really mean what he's saying. Come on. Paul's not the worst. You're not the worst, you're saying to yourself. But I do want you to see that Paul has really thought this out. Paul makes a number of statements in his letters which give an indication that he's been thinking about himself in relation to other people. Early on in his ministry, he wrote 1 Corinthians. And in chapter 15, he compares himself to all the other apostles. And he says, I am the least of all the apostles. Sometime later and down the road, he writes Ephesians. And in chapter 3, he says, I am the least of all the saints. Line up all the Christians and put me at the end. And now, at the end of his life, Paul writes, line up anybody who's ever lived and place me at the head of the list of sinners. Paul's thought this out. He's not being unreal, nor is he being morbid. Now, some would accuse him of that. People would say, um, the problem with Christianity is it makes people feel bad about themselves. When I have to go to church and hear that I'm a sinner, how am I going to walk out of here with a healthy self-esteem? How am I going to walk out of here feeling really good about me, which is, after all, the problem with the world is that people don't feel good about themselves. Christianity, people will say, well, it makes them hate themselves. And that's no good. So Paul's just morbid. We ought to dismiss him. Now, think for a second. I don't think Paul is being morbid. Paul knows himself well enough to remember that in his days as a religious leader, he was a blasphemer, he calls himself in this passage. He persecuted Christians. He chased down people that had believed in Jesus, and he sought to throw them in jail, to have them tortured to have them murdered. Paul was a violent man, an insolent opponent, he calls himself. Verse 13. In this context, probably he means that he was a trampler of people. He thought he was doing a good work, even while he was actually doing a bad work. He, was, he thought acting on behalf of God, 
in the aid of God's cause as he destroyed people. And there was probably undoubtedly in his heart a motive that desperately wanted to feel superior to everyone else. We know in Philippians that he had a lot of things to boast about in his life. He was a good, moral, upstanding, intelligent, well-taught, well-schooled, religious man. Paul will go on to say, but when I met Jesus, I count all of that but dung. But you know how it is. When you only think of yourself as good, it's easy to look down your nose at everyone else. When Paul's not being morbid, he knows himself. He's not being unreal. He is being honest. The question is, do you take Paul's view of himself as your view of yourself? Do you see yourself this way? Are you the worst sinner, the chief that you know? I know that you don't believe this. I mean, imagine two acorns, and I want you to think about this illustration. Imagine two acorns. One acorn falls into a place where there's no soil, no moisture at all. Another falls into a place where there's plenty of good soil and nutrients and food. One acorn grows into a mighty oak tree and the other rots as it sits. Which acorn had greater vitality? Why the difference? It was the environment. They both had the potential. The Bible says that most of us do not grow up to be like the worst person imaginable that we can think of. A Hitler, an Osama bin Laden. But it is not for lack of talent. Your tree may not have shot up like somebody else's tree, doesn't have the same form or shape, the same quantity of leaves, but it's from the same acorn. And and notice in this passage, Paul says, this is present tense. Paul isn't just looking back on some old life that he used to live and saying, I used to be the worst. But all that's better now. It's present tense. I am, not I was, I am the chief sinner. I know myself. I know my motives. I know my doings. I know my failings well enough to know that I have no rivals when it comes to sin. And I want to suggest to you that this is a good place to start as you aim at having healthy relationships with other people. And I will grant to you that it may not be that you are the first cause of a problem in your relationship. That sin may lie with somebody else, but it might be that it is your pride and your self-righteousness which keeps you from being the first one to move forward in reconciliation. And so you continue to be the trouble. Now, why don't you believe that about yourself? We've already suggested it's because you compare yourself favorably to other people and you don't see that you have in yourself the seed of every known sin, just like anyone else. But you also don't believe this about yourself for three other reasons. Let me give them to you quickly. As There are probably others. These three came to mind for me. Number one, you're fooled. You're just deceived about the nature of your own sin. Don't be shocked or surprised by that. None of us are shocked or surprised that you are fooled about yourself. There are lots of things you don't know about this world. You know, it was such a surprise to me uh, 
you know that we regulate our time, and it's, it's in some measure regulated for us by those who know, according to the atomic clock. The scientists have it, of course, figured out perfectly. Well, if, if you were paying attention on New Year's Eve, you would know that, that the world was off a little bit, and the scientists had to reset time as we know it. So at 11.59 and 59 seconds, rather than turning over immediately to midnight, they held the clocks back one more second. 11.59, 59, 11.59, 60, 12 o'clock. Now, some of you slept through it. Some of you kissed through it. Some of you just were blissfully ignorant of that. But, but for seven months, eight months, you've been one second late to every appointment you thought you were on time for. <laughs> but you didn't know it. Blissfully unaware. Well, that's the way it is with sin. We're oftentimes simply blissfully unaware of our sinfulness. That's, that's actually a kindness of God to us. I mean, if I was shown... And it was revealed to me, moment by moment, all the ways in which I fall short of the glory of God in every way by motives of wrong. It would drive me to despair. Not just to despair of myself, but to despair even of the gospel. My sin hides my sin from me. That's what it does. Now, there's a second reason you don't believe this about yourself. It's that perhaps you haven't fully understood the true definition of sin. It's common in our day to think of sin as the bad stuff people do. There's a whole school of theology within Christianity which says sin is simply doing the bad things you know are bad. And if you didn't know they were bad, well, then it's not really sin. It was just ignorance and error or mistake or... But I want to suggest to you that that Christians are learning to see that their chief sins are the things which they fail to do, not so much the things which they have done wrong. Hal Farnsworth shows this illustration. Hal was a campus minister at Vanderbilt. He's a church planter now. And when uh, Hal moved from campus ministry to pastoral ministry in a church context, he was getting to know his neighbors And he had one of these men over from the neighborhood who he was trying to befriend on the one hand and who was a competent plumber and uh, um, very good at handyman kinds of things on the other hand. And so he had him over to help him with some plumbing. He was paying him to do a variety of repair jobs. This guy was the classic Hell's Angels motorcycle riding, rough, tough, quick-tempered, foul-mouthed kind of guy. Well, Hal and he are talking and jabbering back and forth, and it comes out that Hal mentions how sinful he himself is. And and this guy just looks at him kind of with that deer-in-the-headlights stare. What's this? Is this minister crazy? The guy's thinking to himself, he hasn't expressed it yet, but the guy's thinking to himself, you're full of baloney. You think I'm the big sinner, right? 
Well, this guy's been mulling this over for a long time. And you understand his, his thoughts are, are reasonable. Uh, I, I would suggest that probably most non-Christians think of Christians that we think they're what's wrong with the world. Frankly, I think a lot of non-Christians think Christians hate them or are mad at them for all the trouble in the world, that we think we're better than them. Sadly, that's the impression that I think the non-Christian community often gets from Christians. So Hal's been talking with this guy, and this guy's been mulling it over, and some weeks later, Hal basically again mentions how sinful he is, and this guy says it out loud in an unrepeatable sentence, I don't believe you. And Hal responds, let me ask you a question. Who's a bigger sinner? A guy who doesn't know or claim to know God, who doesn't have new life in Jesus, and who uses a few choice words every now and then. Or a guy who says that he knows and loves God, believes that Jesus has forgiven him of all of his sins, is an ordained minister of the gospel of that good news, and doesn't give a rip if you die and go to hell. Who's the big sinner? I think it put the guy on his heels a little bit, made him think. See, there are, there are big and bad and secret sins that you would die to have exposed. And you think those are your worst. But I want to suggest to you that it might be your worst sins include your failure to love the God who made you with all your heart, soul, strength, and mind. Your failure to love your neighbor as you love yourself. There's a third reason we don't believe that we're the chief sinner. And I think it, it goes something like this. It's, it's that we're not trying to love people or we've quit trying. Somebody has hurt us And instead of moving towards them through that pain, I've dropped into reverse and I'm backing away. Or maybe I've simply dropped into neutral and said, live and let live. My neighbor and I can just ignore each other for the next decade we both live here. That's okay. But either way, I'm moving away from them because they injured me. And so I am not going to try to love them. And so I no longer feel how difficult and how painful it is to forgive, to reconcile, to move towards intimacy, and to serve others who have hurt me. And so it's easy easy for me to not think about my sin. This is why, as I tell my students in a series on marriage and dating, why marriage is so good for your soul, why... Having children is so good for your soul. Because when you live alone, why living with somebody, having a college roommate, is so good for your soul. Because when you live alone, 
It's easy to delude yourself because you don't have responsibility for anybody else except for yourself. But coming face to face with people that you're supposed to get up every day and love will show you your sin. So you aren't conflicted, perhaps, about any of your relationships because you aren't trying to love people. Because if you were trying to love people, you would say, this is so hard. Not because they are so hard to love, but because I am so unloving. Are you conflicted about your relationships? If you're not, you're not seeing your sin, your relational sin. You don't believe you're the chief sinner. Now, how how might this play itself out in our relationships with others? How might the gospel work itself out? Because Paul says it's a trustworthy saying, deserving of full acceptance that Christ Jesus came into the world to save sinners, of whom I am worst. And I want to speak to you about gospel-driven relationships, applying this passage relationally. And I want, I want you to think about, on the one hand, mercenary, and on the other hand, mercy relationships. In mercy, mercenary relationships, I think you get what I mean by that, but I want to tease that out a little bit. Uh, on the one hand, it's the playground, the grade school. You know, treat people the way that you've been treated by them. They dish it out to you, you pay them back with a little dishing out of your own. Now, that's obvious. (laughs) In my home, so frequently, it's obvious if you pay attention to the playground, you know, he hit me, so I hit him back. He cheated. So I cheated back. You do it to me, and I'll do it to you. You gossip about me, and I'll gossip about you. Or at least let people know that you're such a big gossip. Now there's another way we do it, a little more sophisticated. It's what we might call junior high or senior high. We treat people well because we think that they are important and it will advantage us. I'll get something in return for pleasing this person. Junior high, I'm going to suck up with the popular people so that I can be a popular person and people will like me. It will increase my self-respect. Bad guys will stop picking on me because I have the right friends. And I have my friends because they advantage me. We, we do this still. I tease when I say this is junior high. In class, students talk to the professor, but nobody else. Because it might just give you a point or two at the end of the semester when you need it to have a good relationship with the professor. And it really doesn't matter if you ignore the person you sit next to all semester long. We do this at work. We get in good with the boss because it will advantage us. We do it at church. I'll talk to the pastor on my way out. But nobody else. 
we imagine that that will do us some good. Now, there is a more sophisticated way in which we express mercenary relationships, not only on the playground of treating people the way that they treat us or in junior high by treating people well because they are important and will advantage us, but sometimes we treat people poorly because we see that they are insignificant and they can't disadvantage us. That's why we ignore half the people we ignore whom we see all the time. Mostly, I think, Christians anyway, tend to treat people the way that we think God has treated us. And I want you to think about the gospel working itself, not in mercenary, but in mercy ways. The gospel is not mercenary. You know what I mean by that? The gospel is not you do something for him and he will do something for you. The popular way that's expressed, now listen closely, the popular way I think that is expressed, though not intended that way, it comes across that way, is to say, you accept Jesus into your heart and God will accept you into his kingdom. Do something right for Jesus, something good for Jesus, something appropriate for Jesus, and God will Do something good for you. Now listen, don't misunderstand me. What I'm getting at is that we present sometimes the gospel as salvation by your faith instead of by God's grace through faith in Christ. In other words, we tend to think sometimes that faith is what I do for God And salvation is what God does in response to my faith. I've jumped through the right hoop. And it's sort of covered for all my sins. And now God is obligated to seal the deal. The gospel is not quite like that. The gospel is not God does for you because you've done for him. The gospel isn't even God does for you, so now you do for him. You know what I mean by this? He rescues you, now pay off your debt. I mean, you thought you had a big debt when you saw your sin, and God rescued you, but you've got a bigger debt now. Because added to your sin is the death of his son. Pile it on and pay it back. Did you ever find yourself doing that? He's given his son for you. You owe him big time. Pay it off. That's not quite what the gospel is either. The gospel shapes me because it is a gift I do not deserve from beginning to end. Jesus does for me what I cannot do for myself in bearing my sin on himself upon the tree. He does in me by his spirit what I cannot do for myself in giving me the spirit to unite me to him and his finished work. He works faith in me. I have to believe, absolutely. But my believing is a resting on what he's accomplished. Not a doing for him, 
the right thing. And my Christian life lived out is an expression of him working in me and through me what I cannot accomplish on my own. My best good works are the gracious spirit working in me and through me. This is why Jesus said, apart from me, you can do nothing. Jesus, to the chief sinner, comes to seek and to save. And he redeems me, and he woos me, and he wins me, and he applies his redemption to me, and he keeps me, and he never lets me go. And that gospel frees me, and it it frees us as we come to grips with it, to love the way that we have been loved. The gospel ought to shape your love for people. It ought to free you from the need to use people and enable you to love people, to love them as they are, not as you wish they would be. Are you impatient with people? You might believe that God is impatient with you. Are you holding things against others? Could it be, friend, it's because you still think God is still holding your stuff against you. You've got a hammer over the head of another person because you believe that God is a hammer over your head. You've not yet seen that he's slammed that hammer on your substitute. Maybe you're not merciful because you haven't been mercy. Maybe you don't accept one another as you look around this room. Because you don't believe that God in Christ has accepted you just as you are. Maybe you don't serve at cost to yourself because you don't believe in a God who has served you at cost to himself. Now, I don't mean to say that this is all easy, and if you just understood, you could do it. If you understood, you would say, Jesus, have mercy on me. Jesus, help me to love because I don't do it very well. So maybe you need to go home and wash the dishes instead of complaining that your roommate doesn't wash the dishes. Maybe you need to forgive your parents and quit waiting for them to enter the real world. Maybe you need to find your satisfaction in the love of Jesus so that you can love your family without waiting for your family to love you. We had a Windstar, 1995 Ford Windstar. It was green. It was a great family vehicle until we outgrew it. Then it became my car. I have a way with cars. But uh, this, this car died on the way to RUF staff training in December. I was on my way to Dallas and didn't quite make it all the way through the mountains here, headed south. But that wasn't the first time that the engine blew on that particular vehicle. I had been traveling to the RUF Summer Conference some years prior, 
and the engine had blown. But that wasn't the first time. We had, we had been given that vehicle by uh, friends. It was a wonderful answer to prayer in, in an extraordinary situation. God gave us a Windstar with 95,000 miles on it with an extended warranty on the motor and engine up to 100,000 miles because there had been a number of difficulties with that particular vehicle. And at 97,000 miles, 2,000 miles later, we were headed out of town and boom, it quit working. And it was a blown head gasket and we took it in and the Ford dealership was kind enough to replace it uh, at free of cost because it was warrantied and I picked it up, drove it a few blocks home, loaded it up to take the family out of town to go across the country, just outside of town, headed north on the highway in Durant, Mississippi. It blew again. Killed the motor this time. Why? Well, there's this thing about oil. And apparently, the dealership forgot to put it back in when they fixed it the first time. Motors don't work without the soothing, smoothing effects of oil. Without it, the parts grind, heat, and bind. This is what your relationships are like. Relationships don't work without grace. Without the grace of the Lord Jesus. Jesus came into the world to save the chief of sinners and to make you the chief, a lover of other sinners. May the Lord make you to be forgiving, kind, just as he has been to you. Let's pray. Father in heaven, the gospel is sweet. Help us to rest in the lover of our soul and make us, Lord God, contrary to our continuing sinful nature, lovers of other people. Help us by your spirit to do battle, to put to death, the love of self, the pride that delights in holding a grudge and make us to be quick to reconcile for the glory of your name, for the display of the grace of your gospel, for the good of our neighbor. In Jesus' name, amen. Let me invite you to stand and sing in response to the Lord Jesus, who is the church's one foundation and our only hope, hymn number 347.